the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It's just the latest study to show that baby boomers continue to break from tradition. Downsizing from the family home after the age of 65 has been a long-standing demographic trend, but not anymore. A report from Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation shows more than half of GTA seniors have no plans to downsize. In 2016, a quarter of homes in Toronto were owned by seniors age 65 plus, up 4.5 percentage points from 2006. Why is this happening? Boomers are staying in the workforce longer, which means they have more money. They're healthier, and the kinds of properties that would make downsizing attractive are not available. Libby Snymer was joined to discuss this hot-button topic by Dana Senegama, CMHC's Principal Economist for the GTA, and Caroline Bale, broker with Royal LePage. There are a lot of things going on. I mean, the fact that the seniors, basically, they have higher wealth, better health, there are varying options. Some of the dynamics would be reduced smaller home options. Uh, They've got available social services. Like there are a lot of reasons that allow a senior to stay in their home, but then a few options that kind of delay it, which would be the high prices. So when you look at Toronto, seniors represent 14% of the population. That is expected to rise to almost 20% by 2026. Um, And with Toronto being one of the highest-priced housing markets in the country, that does put restrictions on the properties that they are able to move into. My understanding is that even if they wanted to, those things aren't available because, say, somebody is thinking of downsizing, they don't want to move to another city, they would like to stay in their neighbourhood. And there just aren't options if you want to move to a smaller home or a town home in your own neighborhood. Uh, I gather that those options are not available. Definitely, those are the issues. I mean, we do have condos and there are townhomes. Townhomes have seen the largest increase in seniors moving into that category. But again, they are limited. And when you look at some of the restrictions on the communities that they are in, it limits their options even more. So with a lot of seniors, they do prefer to stay in their local environment where they push friends and family. They've got the social services in place with doctors, transit, etc. But they aren't always in a position where they are able to stay in that community due to rising costs. Data Senegama, the way this report is being portrayed in a lot of places is this is a big problem for millennials because, uh, you know, the boomers are not making room for them to, uh, you know, move up in the real estate market. But I'm wondering, isn't the, the cost a barrier? Absolutely. And and I'm glad you raised that because what we did find in the report is that the, the greatest share um, of the housing type um, owned by seniors has been in townhouses. And typically in the housing continuum, um, the townhouses rest 
on the midpoint with single detached homes being the most expensive and of course the condominium apartments being at the lowest end and typically that is the entry point for many first-time buyers. We are seeing more of the concentration of seniors um, in the townhouses. In Toronto that's averaging about $800,000 as not an entry point. That being said of course the fact that we are seeing more seniors staying put um, does decrease perhaps the the supply that would be available um, for the overall housing market, not just for millennials. So to your point, I think the cost is is a greater concern and the price points that we're talking about. And typically, these seniors would have owned these homes for, I would say, 30, 40 years. And at at, at current prices, these homes would be priced very highly and unlikely to be the entry point for many first-time buyers. Have you seen anything in terms of the trend to to rent, to maybe sell a home and and rent in the same neighborhood? We do know that currently um, about 33% of the condominium um, universe um, is being rented out. So I'm just talking about the condominium apartments. So that just gives you an idea. Because the rental market is so strong, we don't have the purpose-built rental supply. We are seeing the secondary markets, so particularly in condos and other housing types, kind of stepping in to fill that gap. So there's a strong push towards, um, you know, uh, having a rental property or an investment property and that being rented out. I can't tell you specifics in terms of, if, you know, if a senior is selling their home and then renting it out, but we do know that there is uh, the strong evidence that secondary rental market is, is, is very strong in the GTA. Dana Senegama, CMHC's Principal Economist for the GTA, and Caroline Bale, broker with Royal LePage. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The increase in gun violence in the city does not appear to be letting up. There have been more shootings, a couple of them fatal, since the August long weekend when 17 people were shot in 14 separate incidents. Recently, Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders revealed that 326 people charged with firearms offenses are free on bail. Both he and Mayor John Tory are calling on the courts to toughen bail conditions to keep gang members off the streets. Joining Libby to discuss City Councilor and Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday and criminal defense lawyer Stephen Fishbane, who has more than 30 years experience representing clients charged with serious crimes, including firearms and gang-related offenses. The reality is in the courts that bail for firearms offenses is already quite difficult to obtain. I know that the police chief released the statistic of 326 people being released, but you have to take that in context. The context is there are hundreds of thousands of charges in Toronto every year, and thousands and thousands of people are released. So this is really a very small percentage of the overall amount. So when a person is charged with a firearms offense, that is already what we call a reverse onus charge. Normally, when a person is charged with a crime, it's the government's responsibility to show that they should be kept in custody. But for firearms offenses, there's a special part of the law that says, no, it's up to the accused person to show why he should be released. It's much harder. 
the idea that there are people who are already out on bail for firearms offenses who then get rearrested for firearms offenses is minuscule. That that total is not available. There are no statistics in police Saunders' statements, in John Tory's statements. And that's the key st- statistic in order to justify all these headlines that people are out on two bails for guns. Stephen Holliday, what do you think of what you just heard? Well, I, I do appreciate Stephen's expertise on this. He's he's obviously a very experienced person uh, that you know has worked in the system and worked with these people. But I think what the mayor and the police chief are really tapping into is public sentiment and concern on what we see before us. You know, there's the political system is different than the judiciary system, but I, I believe that they're conceptually tied together. And what we are seeing is the conflict between how people feel about how the accused need to be treated or the severity of penalties and a whole bunch of gradations of sentiment, and then how they perceive the judges to be acting and, and judges being lighter on people uh, than, than many feel they should be. And I think at the end of the day, I think citizens are concerned that the thugs that are running around there doing really bad stuff with guns are not scared. They're not ashamed of being caught. They're not ashamed of going through the court system. And, uh, and, and they're making really, really bad choices uh, without thinking about the consequences. And, and many people feel the consequences aren't enough. And this is just one other way of which the consequences could be made harder. It's certainly understandable that people would be concerned about public safety. Uh, You know, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not just a defense lawyer. I'm also a member of this community. I have three children. I want to live in a safe community, and I want my family to be safe. But what I want with regard to gun violence and safety is I want real solutions, not political show dressing, which is what we're getting from the politicians. For for instance, John Tory says, oh, there shouldn't be any bail at all for people who have a history of gun violence, or there shouldn't be any bail at all for people who are out on bail for guns. Look, it's already very hard for those people to get bail, but you never know what the circumstances are going to be. What if a person with a past criminal record is charged and there's a very weak case against that person, almost no evidence. Should he be detained in custody for one or two years until his trial? That's uh, not fair either. Councillor Holliday, what would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, just that I think everyone knows from an emotional standpoint, from a citizen standpoint, people are frustrated. There is no easy answer. It took us a long time to evolve as a society of where we are today, and people are not happy with that. And I think it's going to take a lot of hands on this to try to steer it back into another direction. Okay. And Stephen Fishbane? All I'll say is that I think the judiciary, um, they do consider the public interest when they're having bail hearings. It's, it's right in the criminal code that they have to do so. But also, we expect from our courts that they're not going to make an emotional decision about something like that. We want our, our, courts, our courts to be rational and to make an intelligent, reasoned decision. And if, if reason dictates that a person can be released on bail without any danger to the community, then they should get bail. Criminal defense lawyer Stephen Fishbane and Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday.
You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent a couple of days in our city this past week making an announcement on new federal funding for refugees to have access to legal aid. Trudeau also met with Mayor John Tory at City Hall, where Tory lobbied the PM on Toronto's election priorities. While speaking to reporters after their meeting, the Prime Minister criticized Doug Ford's Ontario government for not moving on infrastructure projects like a community centre in Lawrence Heights. The day before, Trudeau slammed Ford for cancelling legal aid funding that Trudeau has picked up. This was a hot topic with our Tuesday strategy panel. Joining Libby, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Toronto Office of Earnscliff Strategy, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and former Toronto City Councillor and mayoral candidate, Kim Wright, Principal Kim Wright Strategies, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischmann Hillard High Road. There's been a lot of talk uh, about guns and gun violence and trying to resolve those issues. Um, And the Premier has actually now put money uh, on the table uh, for this issue and has has been trying to, uh, you know, get the federal government to be tougher on the laws. Because some of the problem and most of the problems that we face are repeat offenders. And those people that, that get charged with gun violence and are violent get back on the streets in short order and they commit the crimes again. We need stronger sentences so those who repeat uh, have our repeat offenders on gun offenses are staying in prison uh, and not uh, committing more crimes. Kim, uh, back to the uh, strategy of fighting Doug Ford. What do you think of it? Yeah, at, at, at this point, it is his best hope, uh, especially in Ontario, where the premier is not popular, uh, which is always surprising for a populist premier not to be as popular this uh, short into his mandate. But there are some you know, uh, you know, practical measures where some of the funding around legal aid. Yes, it was abhorrent that the the province decided to cut legal aid. Uh, although they did, they, there is a point to be made about the amount of uh, refugee settlement and settlement claims and, and that are part of what is causing a, an increase in legal aid funding. Uh, there is a lot of problems between the feds and the province uh, around this issue and around who is actually responsible for it. And this goes back for generations that the federal government not paying, frankly, their fair share uh, to to Ontario, but and, also and to Toronto around the around this, and that's and that's a problem. Uh, and and by this. the way, not paying as much of a percentage as they pay in other provinces. Absolutely. And this whole rebalancing of confederation and and transfer payments and what actually is the responsibility of which order of government is, is certainly coming home to roost over and over and over again on whether it's on legal aid, whether it's on settlement, whether it's on housing. And let's be honest, part of the challenges that we have around the guns and gangs issues is a lack of affordability in housing uh, and communities. And that is partially the responsibility that is responsibility that's been abdicated by the federal government for years. Karen? Well, you know, I think it is a short-term strategy to run an election campaign at a federal level against a premier of one province. That, uh, you know, I think that Trudeau certainly has a lot of um, initiatives that he could speak to and speak about and speak for. And I, I think it is short-sighted. I think it's really short-sighted because the rest of the country is going to be looking for answers around these issues, such as what's happening out West, what's happening in BC, what's happening in Alberta. They're really serious issues for this entire country. And to focus on Doug Ford, a provincial premier in Ontario, I, I think is a mistake. 
Uh-huh. Okay. And now defending the Liberals, Charles Byrd. Well, I think it's terrific that three levels of government, the city of Toronto, the province, and the federal government have come to an agreement, a meaningful agreement around additional funding to combat gun violence in our communities, which is obviously a, a top of mind issue for a great many Torontonians, has taken on added resonance given recent events in the United States, tragic as they have been. And um, I think it's entirely appropriate that the Prime Minister should be drawing attention to the potential of this kind of collaboration between various levels of government. It's unfortunate that the Premier has not seen fit to open up the funding envelope over the last 14 months, as the Prime Minister has indicated. And that may be for political reasons of, uh, of, of, his, of his own thinking. I'm not sure, but um, clearly more collaboration is needed, not less. It also may be a, a, a not knowing. It is a new government, and these are, pe- are uh, there are a lot of people in that new government that didn't know a lot of things about how governing functioned. So they may not have known that they might have had access to some of those funding envelopes to begin with. But regardless, there needs to be a much more collaborative approach. And frankly, even, even today, looking at a conversation that's being had around guns and gangs, and everyone wants to take credit and do a photo op, and here's some more money, we're not getting at some of these root causes of, of what's been happening, why gangs have been allowed to flourish in Toronto. Uh, and we're not seeing the Premier, the Prime Minister, and the Mayor of Toronto getting together and sitting down and, and sorting these things out in a meaningful way. This is politics. People are tired of it, just like they're tired of it on every other funding mechanism that we've been talking about. Uh, but on the guns issue, they need to get on the same song sheet and get there fast because people are dying. Kim Wright of Kim Wright Strategies, Charles Bird at Earnscliff Strategy, Karen Stintz of Variety Village, also former Toronto City Councillor and mayoral candidate, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. We tackled a topic of special interest to you because it may reflect what's happening in your life. A new Angus Reid poll indicates one in four Canadians over the age of 30 are taking on the responsibility of looking after their senior family members. Another one in three expect to do so in the future. People in their 40s and 50s are most likely to provide care. In other words, the sandwich generation who also may be raising children. Women are more likely than men to report a major impact on their lives. Nearly half say they're making real sacrifices to balance their caretaking responsibilities with their day-to-day activities. Libby was joined in studio by Amy Kupal, CEO of Ontario Caregiver Organization, Stephanie Conant, Program Manager of Community Connections at North York Community House, and Carol Ann Alloway, co-founder of Family Caregivers Voice. We're certainly hearing, uh, not only through reports like this, but anecdotally, that caregiver distress is on the rise. And so caregivers are looking for support around managing and preventing burnout and also self-care when their caregiving responsibilities may be continuing either in an acute situation or over a long period of time. Informal family caregivers uh, save our system so much money. It's billions and billions of dollars. CIBC puts it at $33 billion. Okay, there we go, $33 billion. So you know what? It's costing them money and uh, they're saving us money. So we should be taking that into account, Stephanie. 
Exactly. There wasn't anything surprising about the Angus Reid poll, but I think what was missing was that experience from diverse populations, populations uh, from other countries and cultures and linguistic groups who really need extra supports when they're caregiving. I would say that it is a worry having especially seniors looking after seniors. And uh, I spoke with one caregiver who is about 80 years old, and she was looking after her 85-year-old husband, and she couldn't get enough hours for him. But when I spoke to her about what her issues were, she was the one who needed hours as well. And there was no one to advocate on her behalf, and she was trying to advocate for her husband. Part of what is shifting in the dialogue in healthcare, in our healthcare system, is helping people to understand that this is a recognized role and to recognize that caregiving role more and for there to be supports and information available. So that's one of the reasons that the Ontario Caregiver Organization exists is not only so we can provide that one-to-one support for caregivers, but so that we can have lots of information and resources that are out there for caregivers. I also wanted to speak to caregiver isolation. We know that caregivers often feel isolated as well. And so connecting with other caregivers through peer support, and through uh, supports that might be available through their healthcare providers is a really critical piece of the puzzle for caregivers. It's very difficult. I mean, uh, there's somebody that we know and love here very dearly who uh, he's very ill with ALS, Carrie Stratton, and, and his wife is a marvelous caregiver and they get the most uh, help, but she still has to be there all the time, can't leave. What is to be done about that? Uh, As Amy said, we have to start with recognition, where we have to recognize and celebrate uh, the, the contributions of informal caregivers. But then aside from recognition is or or on top of the recognition comes the the power of collective voice and so once caregivers self-identify and once um, they're supported and empowered by um, other caregivers like Carol Ann and, and organizations like ours um, then we can see the government acting more and more. And we have had a lot of support from all levels of government, um, but it's that access to service and that advocacy piece that's really important. Stephanie Canant, Program Manager of Community Connections at North York Community House. Carol Ann Alloway, co-founder of Family Caregivers Voice, and Amy Kupal, CEO of Ontario Caregiver Organization. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Joan lives in the Eastern GTA and says she and her husband are not about to move from their longtime home. We're in Oshawa, and our mortgage payments are cheaper than rent. We've been here now um, quite a while. It's well over 10 years. We enjoy the uh, the ambiance of having our own home. We're not going to move because, my goodness sakes, the rents are so high we could never afford it. William in Toronto called with his opinion on people convicted of gun crimes. Is it not possible to make these people dangerous offenders and be similar to those people that are in that state not allowed to have bail unless they have complete 
assurities and that they're checked on on a regular basis or completely held in jail until they go to court, period. And that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see these guys held in court for the second, third, fourth, whatever offense of having a proven to having a gun. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Camille in Scarborough, who is happy with the home she purchased way back when she was a young bride. I've only been in my house for 52 years. It's the only house I've ever owned. Wow. When my children were planning on getting married and got married, um, we made a basement apartment for them. They each went down there, saved enough money for a down payment. They um, went, uh, moved out, and then now I'm by myself in the house. I find the prices for rent and for condo fees and everything like that is just too high. And I'm hoping to hang on to my house so that my grandchildren, I mean, my grandson's only, oldest one is only 18, uh, but if they in seven years, or whatever, he's looking to get married and he needs a place to live, he can come in there and save for a house. So that's my plan. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. 